When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. Today, our guest is Dr. Alexin, uh, Allison Alexi. Her new book, Intimate Disconnections, Divorce and the Romance of Independence in Contemporary Japan, was published last year by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Dr. Alexi is a cultural anthropologist teaching and researching about modern Japan at the University of Michigan. So this book looks into divorce in 21st century Japan when drastic social changes challenged traditional views of marriage and made divorce a more easily accessible choice for many couples, especially for women who look for intimate relationships while having to face the trouble and risks brought by divorce. So welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for organizing this and thank you for all the work you're doing. It really benefits the field. I know all your listeners already know that, but I just want to take the opportunity to say a real genuine thanks. Thanks to you and your team. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be with you. Thank you. So this is such a such an interesting topic. Um, I remember when I first started learning Japanese, one of the first readings that I uh, I, I, I had to do was about Jukune uh, Likon. Um, so what made you interested in this topic? Yeah, um, so I'm not sure if our listeners know what Jukunen Nikon means, but so I'll just take a second and explain that. It makes me want to ask you, what year was that? Do you remember what year it was that you were given a reading about Jukunen Nikon? It was 2010. 2010. Okay. So Jukun describes, um, I usually translate it as later life divorce. So this is these are divorces that are between people who are, you know, later than retirement age, basically. Um, and there was a, a legal change that went into effect uh, in 2007, I believe, making it a little bit more possible for divorced women in this category to get some of their ex-husband's pension. And it became a kind of controversial issue in Japan, even though the actual numbers of later life divorce are not that high. So as a category, (laughs) something that people talk about, or maybe even something that people worry about, or as a media, um, you know, item in in the newspaper and magazines, Jukunen Nikon later life divorce is certainly a a relatively popular thing. So I guess I'm not completely surprised (laughs) that you learned about that or you were asked to read about that in Japanese language class, uh, especially after the law law change. So 
my research, this book is really about divorce generally. So in contemporary Japan, and contemporary Japan really means um, sort of the 1990s and later. I did the research in, starting in 2005 um, and, and since then. But the book is about divorce generally, how people decide what's a good relationship or a good marriage or a bad marriage, and how you leave the marriages that you decide are bad or you deem um, you know, unhealthy or, or bad for you. Uh, so later life divorce, Jukun and Nikon, plays a role in the book because it was a really popular imaginary. It was a really popular fantasy while I was doing the research or when I was starting the research. So all of a sudden in 2004 and 2005, lots of people started either fantasizing about getting divorced, like leaving someone they'd been married to for years or decades even, or alternatively, people, uh, especially men, started being really worried about getting divorced, like getting left. So that's where the book starts with um, this this kind of, I call, the first chapter of the introduction is called Anxiety and Freedom, um, because some people were feeling really anxious that they might suddenly get left. Uh, and other people were really excited about the, the potential for freedom, right? The, the fantasy of the freedom uh, that divorce might bring. So I start with this kind of uh, media image or almost a caricature of what divorce might be doing to people as a way of getting at and getting into what divorce actually was and is for so-called, you know, everyday people, as opposed to just the media image. That's, that's fascinating. And I understand this is an open access book. Is that correct? Yes, thank you for mentioning that. I really appreciate it. So uh, for people who are unaware, open access is a relatively new publishing scheme that works for articles, but also now for books. And so this is published, you can buy a hardback if you really want a hardback. I don't know if anybody does a paperback, or you can get a digital version. So a PDF or a version for your Kindle or for your iPad for free. If you look on the University of Chicago Press site, there's a link there that will give you lots of different options. It's totally legal. Um, and it's funded through the TOME program, T-O-M-E, that is supported financially by the University of Michigan's provost office uh, and also by the University of Chicago Press. So I really want to say thank you to everyone for making this possible. Um, it's been really exciting to see how people engage the book because it's uh, sort of free and floating around the internet. Um, and I think that it'll be interesting to see how that continues. I also want to say that I'm happy there'll be two other versions of the book. There's a Japanese language translation that will be coming out from Misuzu Publishers, um, and there'll be a Chinese language version of the book as well, hopefully coming out within the next year. So I'm really excited to see uh, what how people respond to that. You know, one of my goals as a, as a researcher and a scholar is to make my research as accessible as possible. And I mean that in all senses of the word, you know, I try to write in a way that's more accessible, I, I hope, than most academic writing or than some academic writing. And I also am trying really hard to make it as available to people as possible. So unfortunately, the two translations will not be open access, but the English language version is. Yeah, that's still that's still really amazing, and I wish that could happen to more of the um, academic books out there. So, um, before we talk about divorce in the twenty first century, can you give some background on 
what marriage was like in the past, and what were some of the most valued ideas about it. Yeah, sure. This is such a good question. I know you're a historian, so I have a feeling you probably know more about this than I do. But um, yeah, you know. So let me start by saying I am not a historian. At the same time, that as an anthropologist and in the midst of doing this research, history was really important to my interlocutors. Right. So history was really important to a lot of people. When I was doing this research, and so of course I need to take history seriously, but I take it seriously from the perspective of the people with whom I'm doing research. So people who are thinking about divorce or worried about divorce when I start this research in 2005, um, and in ways that you might predict, divorce was being used at the time in Japan and also in other places, probably as evidence that the Japanese family is falling apart. Right, so saying, oh well, you know, the divorce rates right now, oh my gosh, they're so high, or they're they're increasing, which might or might not actually be true, but divorce in general was used often used as evidence of family decline. So in this understanding or in this assumption, there's the idea that at some point in the past, <laughs> Japanese families were stronger, better. More stable, healthy, healthier, right? All of these things in the past. And now, as evidenced by the fact that more people are getting divorced, look, families are really falling apart, right? There's really this, this, this clear、uh, decline in the strength and health of Japanese families. When we look at actual history, this is just simply not factually true. The highest divorce rate in Japan to this day was in the Meiji era. Right, so in the late 1800s,、uh, there were more people per capita getting divorced in the late 1800s during the Meiji era than are getting divorced now, or were getting divorced when I wrote this book. And so, people's sense of what historical norms impacted on families and A historian's perspective on what of Japanese families say looked like in the Meiji era are often really different.、Uh, so I I find, for instance, if people are interested in exploring more of the history, one of the books I cite is a wonderful book called "Divorce in Japan." I believe the subtitle is "1600 to 2000" by Harold Foos, published by Stanford. A few years ago,、uh, and he makes very clear、uh, the really complicated. Actual practices of Japanese families、um, in in that broad period, right? So he's. I think my memory is that he's focusing a lot on、um, sort of Meiji and early Meiji period. So it, it, when what I have learned from historians is that when we go back and look at actual historical practices of Japanese families, they are almost always more complex and more diverse than people expect. And by people, I mean people in Japan. People outside of Japan, right, who have a sort of similar image of Japan, Japanese society, and therefore Japanese families as somehow more stable in the past. So, if you look back at the history, Japanese families have always been pretty complicated, right? So, one of one of the tricky questions is how do you define what counts as a family? Do do we count maids? Do we count servants? Do we count second wives? Do we count "Quote unquote,、um, children who are you know born out of wedlock. Who counts as who counts as the family? So when you start to pay attention to、um, 
actual historical experiences and not just the imagined history of Japanese families, they have always been complicated. Of course, there are trends, there are changes. One of the things that Harold Fu says so clearly and convincingly in his book is that there are really significant or were really significant regional differences. Uh, And so the marriage practices and what marriage was like and what divorce was like uh, was very different, basically, broadly speaking, in Eastern Japan versus Western Japan. So uh, if people are interested, I have a little tiny sliver of it in my book, but because I'm not a historian, um, all I'm really doing is is two things. So it's citing other, other work that's really worth reading and then talking about what history meant to the people with whom I did research. That's a really good point. I remember this story from... Um, from a book by Luke Roberts talking about in the Edo period, the Tokugawa period, so even before the Meiji period, how a woman went through so much trouble to divorce her husband, and eventually she succeeded. So that's, um, yeah, uh, it's it's one of the examples against the the kind of conventional idea that oh, Japan really values family, that kind of um, um, generalized idea about, yeah. Yeah, and and to your point, you know, if the expectation is Japan values families or Japanese society privileges families, the next question that I think an anthropologist at least would ask is, and what does it mean to value a family, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, valuing family can be really vicious, violent pronatalism, right? So it can be ableism. It can be all sorts of things. It can certainly be misogyny. Um, so it, it figuring out exactly what it means for a family or the idea of family to be privileged is, is certainly worth going into. And... Um... When it comes to divorce, obviously it involves two people. In the introduction part of your book, you open with the fear in husbands that their wives might divorce them one day, and and the wives, on the other hand, will enjoy the fun from just thinking about divorcing their husbands. This gap between the reactions from the two parties seem quite big. So, what do you think? Why do you think they have so different attitudes towards divorce? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, So one of the things that I found in my research was that there has been a shift, a really deeply gendered shift in stereotypes and expectations about who requests a divorce or who desires a divorce. So as recently as the 1990s, um, certainly the early 1990s, I think it was pretty common for uh, the, the general expectation is that men would request divorces, husbands would request divorces, and their wives would refuse them. So I can get into the legal process of of how this is possible if you're interested. But broadly speaking, the the general understanding, common belief was that men wanted divorce and women refused them, worked to refuse them. Women did not want to be divorced. And when I started doing my research in 2005, one of the things that almost everybody told me right away was that that was no longer the case that in something like a decade or so, there was, there was a pretty significant flip. And at that point, then women were the ones who were requesting divorce or were much more likely to request divorces. And husbands were the ones who were 
surprised by that request, anxious about a possible request, right? Anxious about getting left or uh, worked to refuse a divorce, right? So refused basically to sign the paper. And of course, uh, there's always variation, right? So even though that was a common stereotype when I was doing my research or a common understanding, there were still lots of people. I knew men who initiated divorce, right? And I knew women who did not. But so that is one of the major gender shifts that I encountered. And I should say, too, that when I first encountered it, I was just really suspicious, right? So if you're doing field work and everyone tells you there's some obvious truth in the world, you listen to them, but you also try to investigate it yourself, right? So you're not, I'm never going to exactly believe anything anybody tells me, right? It's sort of like trust, but verify. And I spent a lot of time trying to verify this. And I, I think they're right. <laughs> I, I, I really do. There are, there are a lot more women, at least, who were um, pretty explicitly seeking divorce or fantasizing about divorce. So to go back to your question about divorce being between two people and sort of two sides of the story, yes, of course, you're absolutely right. I would also expand it even further to say that most divorces, I would say, involve many more than two people, right? So the children of divorcing parents are the most obvious other people who are directly impacted by the divorce. Uh, but, but you know, larger family networks, relatives, their parents, their friends, friendship networks, right? So divorce is often not only about two people, and therefore there are even more than two sides of the story. There are usually many, many sides of the story. And um, I think there potentially could be a really interesting book about, let's say, the truth of any particular divorce, like really figuring out what actually happened. Um, but I think I think that would probably take many, many, many years just to research. So something like 20 years or so, because you would need to be to to write that book. You would need to be with the couple sort of in the marriage for almost as long as the marriage has been around. I think that lots of people, when you think about divorce, especially because divorce can be contentious, of course, right, and conflictual, um, some readers or some listeners might expect a book about divorce to be sort of, <laughs> uh, how to say it, like taking a side and saying, let me introduce you to this previously married couple and let me tell you why the husband is wrong or the wife is wrong. And, and that's not what I do in my book. I honestly am not sure that anybody could really do that research, perhaps, um, or produce a book like that, perhaps other than a marriage that they're actually in themselves, right? But so the other thing to say about this is that um, I'm gathering what I call retrospective reimaginings. So I don't want to ask you a personal question or ask our listeners a personal question, but if you think about a breakup that you've either been in or um, that you know of, right? So like maybe one of your friends broke up with someone. The story that the person tells about that relationship really significantly shifts. So what they say, what someone says, let's say what a, what a husband says about or ex-husband says about his marriage five years after the divorce is finished is probably different than what he says in the midst of the divorce and is almost definitely different than what he says 
at the beginning of the marriage, right? So that doesn't mean that any one of those narratives are lies or false necessarily, but it means that it really depends on where I'm talking to someone in their timeline um, and, and therefore what they'll say. So rather than worrying about like getting the full story <laughs> or something like that, that's just, it's, it's not my project. My project is about understanding how people understand and explain divorce. So what they tell me is very, very helpful. That's, that's what I'm using for my analysis, as opposed to doing something like what a detective would do, right? And go and investigate and say, okay, well, you said, you know, your ex-husband had an affair. Let me go investigate that affair and see if it's true. And, you know, that kind of like forensic work. And that's, that is not my skill set and, and not what that I did. Really interesting. And also important as well. Um, so I, I know that in Japanese, the word for divorced, I guess if you're divorced once, they call it batsuichi, which I guess can roughly translate to strike one. Um, so that would mean that this concept of divorce still has a, some kind of negative nuance to it. Would you would you would you say so? Would you say it's still quite negative in Japanese society? That's such a good question. Um, yeah, thank you for thank you for thinking about that, and thank you for noticing. Um, you're right. A shorthand for divorce is batsuichi, so either strike one or one strike, one X, any one of these things. It's it's not positive. <laughs> so people might use it in a joking way, but it's it refers to something that is certainly stigmatized. But one of the things I found that I was surprised by, honestly, was that what actually counts as stigmatizing seems to be shifting or to have slightly shifted already. So in the course of my research, I interviewed, say, for instance, a woman who I interviewed when she was in her 80s. And uh, she was her husband asked for a divorce in the 70s. Um, so in the 1970s, um, when she was, I think, like in her 40s or something. And um, she refused because she knew that it was going to make it really hard for her to live in society, right? She felt the stigma. She knew the stigma of divorce or she could imagine the stigma of divorce. I should also say she was really worried that her kids would not be able to get married because the stigma of divorce would, her divorce, the parents' divorce would impact the children so much. And so they stayed legally married they lived separate lives. He ended up having a long relationship with another woman, had children with her. Those children are not um, legally registered in his family register, his Kolseki, because uh, he was not married to the mom, right, when they were born. And so I definitely know and talked with people who were really worried about the stigma that divorce brings. And there are other stories I tell in the book, for instance, a woman who is quite convinced that when she applied for art school, actually, in the 1980s, she was rejected. Um, and she's convinced it's because from she was rejected from this, this very prestigious art school because her parents were divorced. And, you know, she was sure of that. And there's lots of evidence to support. We can't prove that particular case, but there's lots of evidence. Sort of famously, Kinokuniya, the bookstore, uh, didn't hire, refused to hire divorced people through the 1990s, I want to say. So um, the stigma is is 
was real and is arguably still real to some degree. But one of the things I found and I write about in the book is that rather than this social stigma, what seems to be impacting people more, and especially women after divorce, is there is just poverty. So um, many women after they get divorced end up with much less money. Um, and partially that's because they no longer have access to their husband's salaries, right? Or, um, and also it's because of the really deeply gendered labor market in Japan. So whether or not someone is divorced, a woman is divorced, it can be really hard for a woman, especially over the age of 35 in Japan, to get a full-time job that really pays her a livable wage, right? So something that is uh, flexible enough to allow her maybe to take care of children, right, to do, do, do domestic work, but also to, to live on her own. So uh, I write a lot about how rather than the stigma, which, again, could still very much be present, it's really these, um, you know, the political economy of the labor market and the way it intertwines with gender that causes the most problem, especially for women after divorce, and especially for single mothers at that. That's, um, I guess that's one of the, the things that we will never know um, for, for, for sure, one of the truths that we will never find out. And would you say that this fear for the stigma from society um, is one of the reasons that these women wait for so many years to file for divorce? Is that one of the contributing factors towards this uh, late life divorce phenomenon? Yeah, later life divorce, probably yes. Um, so later life divorce means, as we said earlier, women who usually their husbands are past retirement age, so over the age of, say, 65. Um, Probably, yes, one of the things they're worried about is social stigma, of course. Um, and, you know, being, let's see how to say this. It is possible that people are worried about, say, social stigma and not particularly worried about the loss of income. Um, and, and both of those are really valid. So, yes, certainly, um, if you're asking why specifically are women, older women, thinking about later life divorce sort of all of a sudden? Is, is that the question? Yes. So why, why did, uh, why did uh, later life divorce become such a popular thing? Why, why did these women wait for so many years? Why when they um, go after their freedom or happiness earlier in their lives, yeah. Well, so let me start by saying, of course, there are so many different ways that a person can go after freedom and happiness, right? So it's perfectly possible to be in, let's let's just say, an unhappy marriage and not think that divorce will offer much happiness or, or much of a solution, right? So there are lots of people in Japan, but also elsewhere, who stay in relatively unhappy marriages because that is what they want to do, right? And they figure out a way to still be legally married, but live as happily as possible. And let me be clear here. I am not 
necessarily suggesting that you do this or that any of our listeners do this, but let me just say it's it's a possibility, right? And and you know, not all marriages without divorce are happy. And I apologize for the sort of the double negative in there, but right, there are lots of unhappy and still existing marriages. And the same is true for divorce, right? So sometimes divorce can be a really wonderful thing. Divorce can solve a lot of problems. And in other cases, divorce can cause problems, right? And so it's, if we're thinking about later life divorce in particular, it seems like it is not it is related to a, this legal change around the pension system. So in 2004, um, there was a legal change passed at the at the national level, right, in Japan that said uh, divorced women could access up to half of their ex-husband's pension payment. So before this law went into effect, if you were an older woman and you divorced your husband, you had no access to his national pension, right? And after this law, it was passed in 2004 and it went into effect in in 2007. So there was this sort of three-year period where people were telling me that they were waiting to get divorced. So um, I think that the legal change really sparked (laughs) or was a bit of an excuse to spark these fantasies about later life divorce. And I want to be really clear. I've written an article about this if anybody wants to to read more about it. But um, I don't think that in practice there was actually that much money really involved. It wasn't like suddenly the government was giving women enough money to live on. And this was the only thing that had been holding them back. But symbolically, it was really important that all of a sudden there was some possibility or some chance of um, getting a little bit of money from an ex-husband's pension. So most, it depends, of course, on what the pension was, but probably we're talking about the equivalent of like hundreds of dollars a month, not thousands, not, you know. So, um, there's a lot going on, but there's certainly a space to fantasize yeah, as well. well. As a graduate student, I can certainly understand their excitement to a degree. But when when looking into the the, the reasons for divorce, um, you also mentioned that uh, many women who filed for divorce cite the lack of intimacy as one of the biggest reasons. So what does an intimate relationship mean in the context of um, early 21st century Japan? Yeah, so that's exactly the question. <laughs> what does it mean, and um, what are people looking for? That's that's sort of the motivating question of the re- of my research project. And the answer is um, partially it depends on the person, right? And partially that there are um, broad trends or common patterns that I noticed. And one of the common patterns that I noticed was that people were as they were trying to decide you know, what makes a good marriage or what makes a bad marriage? Should I leave the marriage I'm in? Um, they were they were really sort of choosing between three different and possibly contradictory models for intimacy. So let me take a step back and say, when people are thinking about intimacy, it's not just a yes or no question, right? Like, do I want to be intimate with this person? And I'm, I don't even mean this as a euphemism for sex right now. I just mean like, do I want an intimate relationship with this person? The other thing that people are trying to figure out and need to figure out is what what does that relationship look like, right? So this is what I call styles of intimacy. So there's all sorts of different ways of demonstrating, performing, experiencing, feeling intimacy. So for example, I could imagine that most of our listeners, regardless of the culture they're from or the culture they live in now, probably 
the way your grandparents <laughs> express intimacy is probably pretty different than the way you would want to express intimacy, right? Um, and and everybody's loving here. Like, it's all a good situation. But I can't imagine, for instance, my grandparents um, on either side of my family saying I love you out loud, right? They're not particularly white American grandparents um, in, in the Northeast. They're not particularly affectionate that way to each other, right? Probably maybe to the grandkids, but not not to each other. And that feels that feels normal, right? That felt normal to them. That was what they want. There's a parallel with with what's going on in Japan, right? So there's different styles of intimacy. There's some couples who would never ever want to say I love you to each other because that just feels what it feels like too much it feels too it feels too sugary or too sappy or something like that right there's also people who would never say that in public but would certainly say it in private there are people who don't really show physical affection at least not in public right people who the idea of holding hands is I don't know, too much or creepy or overwhelming. So styles of intimacy um, are always varied. They tend also to vary by generation, not just in Japan, but in other places as well. So your question is such an important one and is, is really the question at the center of my project, which is, you know, what kinds of intimacy do people want? Um, do people... so? You know, what What can you imagine wanting, but then also what can you actually build with your partner? So what I'm arguing in the book is that, you know, during the course of my research, I noticed people are really choosing between three different clusters of um, sort of uh, models for intimacy. So the first one is uh, a, what is commonly called a companionate marriage or companionate romance. So this is uh, something that was probably recognizable to many of your of our of the listeners here that um, companionate romance is the idea that your your spouse should be your best friend. So you should really marry someone that you like, or you should be dating someone that you actually like, right? It's not just because they're you know good for your family or something like that. So companionate romance is certainly um, recognizable in Japan, right? So not everybody believes that, but lots of people do. Uh, the second thing that um, I noticed was that people were talking about dependence a lot, um, Amai, and uh, talking about how dependent relationships were still uh, privileged or valued within families. So this can be uh, relationships between parents and children, and this can be relationships especially between husbands and wives. So um, for those of you who study Japanese studies, you know that Amai um, is a very I don't want to say controversial term, but it it definitely has tinges of Nihonji Niron. It has tinges of Orientalism. So when I first heard it, I was like, "Oh God, please no, not not Amai, right? <laughs> like not 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 this deeply heavily loaded term, please." But it turns out that that I needed to listen to what people were telling me. Um, so I started to take it more seriously and to try to figure out what were they telling me when they were telling me that dependence was a problem or a potential problem or a risk for them. And that leads me to the third sort of category or model of intimacy that I noticed, which was which was neoliberalism. Um, and so uh, neoliberalism is a term that I think a lot of people hear and maybe feel weird about. Maybe you know exactly what it is, but I'll just say my definition is that neoliberalism can happen at the level of government policy, which is often um, making public utilities or public companies private, so privatization generally. And it can happen at the level of the individual, right? So in that case, 
neoliberalism or neoliberal rhetoric plays out as the idea that a truly mature and good person is also responsible for themselves. So sort of independent and responsible. And in Japanese, this is jiko sekinin, so literally self-responsibility. And so I was trying to figure out, I was watching people basically try to figure out what kind of intimacy they wanted uh, in a marriage or after a marriage and was noticing that they were choosing between these three sort of contradictory models. And um, so what the book is narrating is sort of noticing those choices, noticing the debates and the contradictions that people are uh, navigating between. That's um, that's uh, really interesting because before reading your book, I always thought the term jikosekini on your, your, your own responsibility. I always thought it was a term to, um, I guess, a term in some sense nihilistic because that would be um, trying to cut away, cut, cut the tie between the two people and to say that it's my own responsibility. But you're saying that, well, this, uh, this encouragement of individualism and the, the increasing dependence on family relationships are also a part of this neoliberalism. How, um, how does the government um, function in these changes? What, what's, what are some of the government's policies that um, helped um, shape these new changes in marriage life? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you. Um, well, so I talked earlier about the legal change um, to the pension law system. And um, you can, if anyone's interested, they could read more about it in this article that I wrote a long time ago now. <laughs> but um, so that's one example. Um, and broadly speaking, I think that what was going on there, the reason that that this option became available was because um, Japan's society population is aging very rapidly. And, um, you know, the pension system broadly will, will need to be uh, re- reformulated to be able to sustain itself, right? They're going to run out of money because there are too many older people and not enough younger people who are in the labor force, actively working in the labor force. So that's one example. Um, but to to the broader question about policy, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, right? So in Japan, but also elsewhere, there are policies that are pushing responsibilities uh, off of government entities right? And more on to individuals. So this is a kind of classic example of neoliberalism. But when you think about it, and anthropologists have done research about this in all sorts of different cultural contexts, when you think about it, what it actually means to have, you know, the government provide fewer services and and more responsibility being pushed on to an individual usually means that families also have to step into that, right? So um, in lots of in practice, in lots of cases, policies that are neoliberal often mean that families have to step up and help each other and, you know, share resources and share money and uh, navigate a world that has more neoliberal policies. So that's one of the things that I noticed. And um, for people who are interested, I do write a, a bit about that in the book and cite other, especially anthropologists, other social scientists who are noticing that in practice, um, 
there are, you know, neoliberal policies come down pretty hard on family members, family responsibilities, and family relationships. And in many ways, that really actually means women, right? So that women have to become more responsible for other people in their families um, to combat, to respond to, um, to, to help um, deal with neoliberal policies. And back to our earlier conversation about the gap in men and women's attitudes towards divorce. So the pursuit of self-dependence, as you mentioned in the book, is sometimes met with obstacles in reality. What are some of the common consequences that divorced people have to face? And do they differ? Do those consequences differ between men and women? Yeah, another really important question. So I had mentioned earlier that one of the common images of divorce is now, as opposed to, say, the, the 1990s, divorce is something that in Japan is something that women want and men refuse or work to refuse. And and I do find that that's basically the case. Um, but divorce is not evidence that women are winning, if we want to use that really loaded word, um, because of all of the socioeconomic problems that women face after divorce in Japan. So single parent of single parents of any gender do uh, face significant financial problems after divorce. But right now, many more women take on um custody after divorce. And so therefore, they are much more likely to be burdened with the costs, the literal costs, and then all the social costs of having children um, and being a single parent. So that's a real problem. Um, and there's a real gender difference there. The other cause of that problem is, as I mentioned earlier, the gendered labor market. It's very hard it's pretty hard for anyone in Japan to get a good, well-paying job after a certain age, right? There is age discrimination. Um, and there's also gendered patterns in who is hired into what kind of position, right? So a woman, say a 40, 45-year-old, 40-year-old mother, single mother, she could absolutely get a job, right? But whether that's a good enough job that pays her enough money to actually support herself and her children, that's a different story, right? So the Japanese labor market would fall apart without women working, right? But those jobs might not be or are less likely to pay enough to be full-time so-called regular positions, right? Say Shaheen positions um, that actually let them uh, support their family, right? So I have a chapter early in the book called Japan's Political Economy, um, Intimate Political Economy, excuse me. And I'm talking a lot about how the labor market is deeply gendered. It's incredibly heteronormative, and it expects that labor laborers, people working in the market, uh, will be uh, heterosexually married, right? So that women are are able to rely on their husband's salary. Of course, there are class differences. Of course, there are regional differences, right? There are all these other cross-country differences. But in general, it really causes a lot of poverty. Um, and I should say, too, so there are two wonderful, wonderful sociologists who are working more directly on these, these questions of uh, social inequality, 
both causing divorce and also being caused by divorce. And one is Jim Ramo, who is at Princeton, and the other is Hyungjun Park, who is at Penn. Um, and they both work uh, sort of cross-culturally. They focus on East Asia, but I, I cannot recommend their research enough. Um, they tend to be more quantitative than I am. And I cite their work a great deal in the book, but I just want to give another plug for, for their work here too. Yeah. That's, that's yes, the, the, the gender gap is such a huge problem too. I remember last year, Japan was once again um, selected as one of the worst countries in uh, the uh, workplace gender imbalance. Um, I, I think things, things are slightly changing, improving little by little, but um, obviously not fast enough. Yeah, it's it's a real it's a real problem. You know, it's a real set of conditions that people face. Um, you know, it's not exactly parallel, but maybe I can take this opportunity to say too that um, Japan does not have legal joint custody or legal shared custody. So that means that when parents get divorced, one parent or one person has to become the legal guardian, um, the custodial guardian of any child. So it's a little bit more complicated than that, but broadly speaking, that's the case. And one of the things that I say in the book, and I think I'm probably one of the first people to say this, certainly in English, is that in practice, there are lots of Japanese families who manage to share custody after divorce. So legally, say the mom has custody or legally the dad has custody, but the kids see both parents and they have figured out a way to be friendly and and effectively do what I call de facto shared custody. But the problem is that if the parents can't agree and can't stay friendly enough to make that possible, at the moment, the legal system isn't helping, isn't helping support joint custody. So that is another uh, really significant loss that a lot of people face. It tends to be fathers. At the moment, 80% of custody is granted to mothers. And again, a little bit over now, actually 80%. But And there's no joint custody in legally speaking, even though you can do it in practice. And so there are really significant losses for lots of people, um, including the children. So I am very interested in the process that you conducted your research for the book. Uh, so I saved this question, this loaded question again for the last. As you mentioned, when you interviewed people, there could have been so many dimensions to their narratives. And of course, it would have been impossible to capture the so-called truth, not only because of what you were talking about, but also because of who were telling and listening to these stories. Would you be okay with talking about what difficulties you met and how you coped with them and how, what, what um, maybe uh, you mentioned this briefly earlier, but maybe a bit more detail on how you um, decide, um, how you define, quote unquote, truth in, in, conduct, in researching about these stories. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll start by, answer, by describing just a little bit about um, what research methods I used. So I'm a cultural anthropologist, which means I do participant observation. So that means that I was spending a lot of time with people, broadly speaking. So these are people who are currently married, people who are unmarried, people whose parents got divorced, people who have already gotten divorced, people who are in the process of getting divorced, right? Sort of people across the board. Um, 
people, yeah, people, children, adult children of divorced parents as well. And I did this uh, just by sort of hanging out with people, um, spending time with them. So sometimes, of course, we would be talking about divorce and sometimes we wouldn't be. We would just be living our lives, right? Like doing doing what humans do. Um, and this gave me real perspective on how to situate divorce within the context of people's actual everyday lives, right? So uh, there's participant observation that way. And then I was also doing participant observation within uh, focus groups or within support groups, right? So people who um, I was participating in basically group counseling sessions, and I should say I was I was paying, I was a paying member of these groups um, to talk about family stressors, family problems, tensions that they were feeling. So they were never, the groups were not were almost always not focused explicitly on divorce, um, but instead more generally about family tensions or family stressors. So I was in a number of different groups of that sort and always very clear about who I was and what I was there for. I think in this moment, it really helped that I didn't, I am not Japanese. I do not look Japanese. So I was really able, people could tell <laughs> that I was um, sort of un, unusually there. And then that would give me a nice opening to talk about my research. So I was, this is never about sort of being secretive or anything like that. And then on top of that, I was also doing long interviews with people. So the people that I interviewed are people that I knew from these other situations, right? So people whose parents got divorced, people who were divorcing themselves, had been divorced, were thinking about it, all of those same categories. But it's important to just say that I was never doing an interview with someone that I didn't know more broadly. Um, and that kind of contextualization is basically what cultural anthropology is built on, right? So I'm not trying to say that people would lie in an interview. I'm saying that it's really helpful as a researcher to be able to contextualize whatever they say in an interview with other things you've seen, with other things they've told you at a different moment, right? Where you're out drinking or when you're out to dinner or when you're in a counseling group together. Um, and so those are the research methods I used. In terms of truth, I guess it's just... Um, I think I want to go back to what I said earlier and say that, you know, there are all sorts of different ways to do any research project. And that's awesome. <laughs> that's wonderful. And figuring out exactly what happened in a single marriage or a single divorce is just not what my project is about. My project is more generally trying to understand what makes a good marriage in this moment in Japan or what makes a bad marriage or a marriage that you want to end through divorce. So figuring out the truth of it was not the truth of the marriage per se was just not something that my project was focused on. If someone else wants to do that, please feel free by all means. I think it would be fascinating, you know? Um, so I hope that answers your question. Oh no, you wait, you asked me, you asked me questions about difficulty th difficulties. Is that right? Yeah, no, the, it, it answers my question perfectly. Thank you so okay. much. Okay, great. Well, thank, thank you. Um, th this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much. Thank you for reading the book. And thank you for putting in this time and all the work you're doing in the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's such a joy to be with you. Thank you. And thank for our listeners, to learn more about divorce in modern day Japan, make sure to check out this book by Dr. Alison Alexi, Intimate Disconnections. 
Divorce and the Romance of Independence in Contemporary Japan. You can download this book for free on the website of the University of Chicago Press. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. I will see you in our next episode.